Amen. Please be seated. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and join me this evening in Hosea chapter 7. Hosea chapter 7, I'm going to begin, we left off, we cut chapter 6 just a little bit short, uh, believing that that second phrase there of the sentence probably belongs with chapter 7. So we'll, we'll read just all of uh, 6 verse 11 through chapter 7 verse 16. For you also, O Judah... A harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, they are before my face." By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are, all, they are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net." I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they will wail upon their beds. For grain and wine... They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword. Because of the insolence of their tongue, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt." 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you tonight. And as we approach the preaching and the hearing of your word, we confess our total dependence upon you. You give knowledge. You give understanding. You give wisdom by the work of your Holy Spirit. So we ask now for preacher and for congregation that your spirit would work in our midst to make your word clear, to deliver the message you have for the body of Christ, to convict us of sin, to turn us out of evil plans, and to enable us to rejoice in you, our God, through Christ and by your spirit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the earliest counsel I remember receiving from my mother and, and even my aunt at times were that I ought to remember that wherever I went, Jesus went with me. If I went into the movie theater, I was to remember that Jesus was there with me. Whatever movie you are watching on the TV, Christ is watching it with you. They wanted to impress upon me so that I would remember, even as a child, that Jesus was with me. He's, he's watching me. Now, this is one of the reasons that we uh, sometimes are a little bit hesitant to teach our children uh, songs right about Santa Claus. He sees when you are sleeping. Okay, well, no, he doesn't. But God does, right? God watches you. Uh, he, he knows you. And it's convicting to me sometimes to remember uh, if I am entertained by things that offend Christ, that ought not be. But it is a basic truth of the Christian faith you and I need to remember. It's so simple, isn't it? We teach it in our children's catechism. And we ask this question, does God know all things? And the answer, of course, is yes. God sees all things. Nothing can be hidden from him. It's such a simple truth, isn't it? That we we think "This this is basic. It's something that I don't need to remember. I'm actually mature enough to move on from this uh, now. Um, but tonight, Hosea reminds us to consider God's watchful eye. He, he sees it all. And what we see in this passage is that faithfulness to Christ acknowledges his constant presence. If I'm going to live a, a faithful life before Christ, one of the things that I have to acknowledge is his constant presence. That he knows all things, he sees all things. He has a constant presence, a constant awareness of our lives. And the other aspect of that, the other facet, is that I accept his discipline in my life. He sees all things. He knows all things. And he disciplines me, therefore, as a faithful Savior. God is my faithful Father. Disciplines me. And and we learn, I think, from Hosea chapter 7, an aspect of this is how to accept God's discipline in my life. How to identify God's discipline in my life. First of all, notice from the text that you live your life for an audience of one. You live your life for an audience of one. 
God begins in Hosea chapter 7, again picking up on that last phrase of chapter 6. When I restore, or when I would restore, the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel. This sets the whole context of what's coming now in chapter 7. That, that there we see a God who is willing to restore his people. And, and again, this is one of the aspects of Hosea's message. God is depicting himself to you as a faithful father, as a faithful husband. He wants you to, to see him in this light. He wants your perception of him to to be like that of a husband, ready to bestow a tender love upon his people, right? He's always there with arms open, always ready to receive, always willing to give, always willing to greet with mercy and compassion and love. He's not the kind of father, not the kind of husband who when you turn to him seeking forgiveness that he would greet you and saying, no, never. In fact, I want you to suffer a little bit more. I want you to come begging to me. No, God wants you to understand that he is the type of God that when you turn to him, he greets you with tenderness. He greets you with eagerness and love. He's sort of like that father uh, teaching his children how to walk and sees them. He's, he's watching them sort of uh, maneuver along the couch and along the coffee table ready for that fall. And when they do and they hurt themselves and they cry out, that's him. The father who comes and lifts you up. But we notice what does it reveal about Israel. N- notice that the relief against which we see Israel's sin is this tender, loving father, this tender, loving husband ready to receive them. What does it reveal about them? The iniquity of Ephraim. The backdrop is God's love. And what does it display? Ephraim's iniquity and the evil deeds of Samaria. Again, Ephraim and Samaria are mentioned. We have talked a little bit about Ephraim, that northern tribe, But Samaria we haven't discussed. Samaria is the capital or became the capital of the northern kingdom under the reign of a king by the name of Omri. Omri. Very wicked man. Very wicked king. And the northern Israelites then became known as Samaritans. Okay, that's a name that you're familiar with or a title that you're familiar with. You've heard of the Good Samaritan. Well, that story is reminding us of one of Christ's work is to restore the two kingdoms to one another. The Samaritans, the northern kingdom, and the the, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. Here we read of Samaria. I want you to note with me the sin of the Samaritans as Jeremiah puts it in chapter 23, verse 13. Speaking of them, Jeremiah said in his prophecy, in the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. Notice what happens here. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. This is the level of wickedness in Israel. The kings are wicked. We've talked about the prophets. Well, the prophets of Samaria, what are they doing? They are not coming in the name of Yahweh. They are proclaiming the words of Baal. 
to the people of God. This is the level of wickedness. Not only are the priests and the prophets wicked, but notice in verse 3. By their evil, they make the king glad. So we get a picture of the king seated on his throne, observing his people, calling the prophets to himself. They're prophesying in the name of Baal. The priests are making sacrifices to Baal, and the kings are delighting in it. You're getting a picture of the corruption of of Israel. I want you to notice, though, turn over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let's take this moment as we think about the offices in Israel. What did God expect? What did God expect of an Israelite king? The development of an Israelite king was not something that came about just in the period of the judges. We, we noticed that they needed a king, but the appointment of a king was not a wicked thing in and of itself. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, pick up with me in verse 18. When you select a king, notice his first responsibility. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, this is Deuteronomy 17, 18, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him And he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Do you see what the first responsibility of a king is? The day of his coronation, he was to sit down with a copy of the law and write it down word for word and study it every day, memorize it every day, and keep it with him so that he would become what? That Psalm 1 man who is like the river planted by the waters. Go back with me to Hosea chapter 7. What kind of king does Israel have? They now have a king who delights in wickedness. Think about the contrast just for a second. Think about the contrast between the kings of Israel now and Christ at the moment of his temptation. We're going back a little bit in, in, in Matthew here. You remember Christ, those three scenes of the devil tempting him and, and his response, he cannot do these things. Why? Because his heart is so set in love upon the Lord his God that he can't possibly be tempted by these things. And yet the kings of Israel, they delight in treachery. Yet the king is wicked There's no hope for the nation. The kings are wicked. The priests are wicked. The prophets are wicked. God's love has exposed their folly. God, in verses 4 through 7, he goes on and he speaks in a parable about Egypt. Notice verse 4. They are like a heated oven. Verse 6 with hearts like an oven. All night their anger smolders. 
In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire, and then verse 7 again, all of them are hot as an oven. What picture do you think the Lord is trying to drive into your mind here? He wants you to see Israel. They're like a a flaming oven. If you've ever been camping, you, you know that you let the fire go down and there are the smoldering coals and you get up in the morning when it's cold as a dad and and stoke everything back up. You bring the fire back to life. This is the depiction of Israel. At one time, this was the depiction of of God Himself. In Exodus chapter 3, He was the one who burned at the bush, even though the bush was not burned. But here, Israel doesn't burn in a good way. The people of Israel burn with passion. Their, Their hearts Their hearts are burning, not for the Lord their God, but their hearts are burning for sin. They passionately desire it. They are like that that hot fireplace that you you, you can't stand within a few feet of it because it's burning with such heat. But the heat of Israel is not a a heat of glory. They're not shining the light of God amongst the people that they, they live. They burn for sin. God calls them adulterers and drunkards. They are hot with anger, but notice the chief sin in verse 7. Their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Israel has deceived them think, themselves. Why? How? Well, they believe that God doesn't see their evil deeds. They have become so corrupt, so deceived, that they actually convince themselves that God doesn't see. But as we go back up to verse 2, what does God say? They do not consider, they're not thinking in their minds that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. You and I need to remember at all times, this is a meditation of the godly man, that God sees every sin. At Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 17, For my eyes are on all their ways, They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. God is reminding Israel, you're not thinking correctly. You, you can't hide from me. All of this is open and exposed to me. And remember, it's not just the deeds that they are committing. It's, it's not just the prophets coming forth in the public square and say, I declare in the name of Baal. God remembers the secret sins. He can count every one of them. He could number every one of your wicked thoughts, every wicked desire, and he could put them in a chronological order for you. He sees everyone. But, but I want you to notice how this comes to bear on the Christian's life. Turn with me just, if you would please, quickly over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's notice how this has bearing on the Christian life. Paul is giving a testimony to his own 
ministry. <coughs> Let's just notice a, th- a few things that Paul says here. This is First Thessalon- uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brother, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, and here we begin, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And he, he continues, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. We'll stop just there. You get the picture. You see, Paul sees himself as a man entrusted by God, equipped by God, given a message from God, and he lives out his entire ministry in the presence of God. And this is, this is for Paul. It's not a discouragement. But for Paul, this is his encouragement. I live before the face of God every single day. He is my accountability. I receive all of my authority from Him. So you see, for us, this is not a fearful thing. When you consider this, that that I live before the presence of God. He sees everything that I do. He knows my secret thoughts. He knows my desires. We don't live before Him with fear. This is not His intent for you. But it is His intent for those who live in willful sin against Him. There will come a day when every single sin will be brought forth, openly acknowledged. For us, for those who are hoping in Christ, we remember that He sees, He knows. And what you remember is that even the secret sins are blotted out by the love and the blood of Christ. Even your secret sins are blotted out by the blood of Christ. He he dispenses with the known sins and the secret sins. And this is our hope. This is what I take confidence in. When Christ appears, as we talked about this morning... There's not going to be some secret sin that was somehow left out of the transaction that took place at the cross. Everyone has been paid for by the shed blood of Christ. We live before the presence of God. We live for an audience of one. Secondly, in verses 8 through 16, notice that God disciplines those whom He loves. He corrects his sons. He draws them to himself. We'll notice here in just a couple of ways. First, the nature of Israel's sin. What, what is Israel's sin? How, how do you boil it down? We've, we've talked about the treachery of the kings, that they rejoice in evil. We, we've talked about the prophets, that they prophesy not in Yahweh's name. They don't come from Jehovah, they come from Baal. The priests... Their wickedness, how they actually help with the carving of the idols. Notice what God says in verse 10. How have they sinned against Him? Going back to Hosea 7. They do not return to the Lord their God 
nor seek him, he says in verse 10, they do not return to the Lord their God. They do not seek him for all of this. Notice in verse 13, two, two things. They have strayed from me. They have rebelled against me. Verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart. Verse 15, they devise evil against me. Verse 16, they are like a treacherous bow. You see, God is in some sense boiling all of their sins down to this. You are rebelling against me. You're you're not seeking me. This is what I desire. I want you to come after me. Remember, as we look back to to chapter 6, he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. And so everything that you're doing, you're rebelling against me. You're straying from me, not crying to me from the heart. This is what you ought to be doing. God is interpreting every sin as one sin, rebellion. What is God's will for you? Well, he wants you to seek him and cry to him for all of your needs. A benefit that Christ has purchased for you. A benefit that Christ has purchased for you. He has bought it for you by his own blood is access to God the Father. He bought that for you as a benefit in this life, not in the life to come only, but in this life, you have access to the throne of God when you open your mouth in your living room, in your closet, wherever you are, behind the wheel, driving uh, to work, whatever it may be, you have access there through Christ to the very throne of God. But you and I are tempted in those moments where I'm, I'm worried, I'm beset by anxiety, my depression, I have a concern. I, I am tempted not to turn to prayer, but to seek a solution in some other place. What does God say to his people? This is a form of rebellion. And and it's not that you shouldn't go to a doctor per se. It's not that you shouldn't seek the wisdom of wise counsel. But God is indicting his people. Why? You don't call to me from from the heart. Notice what they're doing instead. Go back to verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. What are they doing? Calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. All the armies are arrayed around you. you. You can see them arrayed for battle. And what are you doing? Are you crying out to the Lord your God? Are you remembering that he has orchestrated all of this to turn you to, to himself? No. What are they doing? Well, let's go to Egypt. Let's ask Egypt for help. This is not God's will. God is instructing you. Turn to me. Turn to me. In all of these things, turn to me. Christ has secured this benefit for you. If you don't, inevitably, like Israel, you will turn to another source. Guard your heart. Notice also here, not only do we notice the nature of Israel's sin, we notice the nature of God's discipline. And just just pay careful attention here for a moment. Notice what God does. In verse 11, in disciplining his people, how does he do it? Verse 11, he removes their understanding. 
Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. You and I, we remember that understanding comes from the Lord. If you understand, if you see life as it really is, praise the Lord. That comes from his hand. He has given that to you as a gift by his Holy Spirit. But he can also remove it. He can allow you at times to make silly decisions that cause you pain, that cause hurt, so that he will teach you to depend upon himself. This is a form of his discipline. Uh, Notice in verse 12 what, what happens there. They make plans in their foolishness. They make stupid plans and they get a fool's reward. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. What's going to happen? I'm going to let them make their plans in foolishness, not consulting me. I'm going to let them go about it. And what's going to happen? They're going to come down. I'm going to cause their plans to fail. This is a form again, of discipline. Go back to verse 9. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. God removes their strength. He causes weakness to come upon them. And this is an aspect of his discipline. Verse 16, notice what happens there. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes fall, shall fall by the sword. Uh, because of their insolence, because of the insolence of their tongue. God causes their rulers to fall. You see, God has many ways of disciplining his people. The removal of understanding, the, uh, permitting you to take, carry out a foolish plan, removing your strength, causing weakness to come upon you, perhaps even sickness. And the last one, notice the last verse. This shall be their derision. Where? In the land of Egypt. Here we have the first prediction of a couple in the book of Hosea that you're going into captivity. You're leaving this land. Here, you're going into the land of Egypt. Actually first predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 68. I'm going to bring you back to Egypt. And he does. Mature theology teaches you and me to trace the source of every weakness and every frailty of life to sin. But we know that we are mature in our understanding of God's ways in this. Not that I see in every frailty that I experience and every weakness some specific sin. Not that I am saying, well, well, I fell down, God must be mad at me. That's not what we're saying. But all weakness and all frailty reminds us to seek the Lord's aid. Do you you see? I notice that that I'm growing weaker. Maybe you take that picture in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 where my eyes begin to grow dim. Uh, the, The watchers at the window grow dim. I can't hear the songs in the morning anymore. My hearing is starting to go... The strong man becomes bent. My knees start to give out. My back hurts. All of these things are a reminder of sin, the presence of sin. And every failed plan that you make, every time you experience weakness of body, is a kind and a gentle reminder from the Lord your God to seek his face. 
No aspect of your journey from the cradle to the grave can be accomplished apart from God's support, His loving care, His kindness towards you. And He wants you to seek Him. What does He desire? Steadfast love. He wants you to cry out to Him. He wants you to exercise the benefit that Christ has purchased for you. And therefore, all of these things that you experience, every weakness, every frailty in life, every failed plan, every time you notice that your strength is gone, is a a reminder to call out to the Lord your God. Call out to Him. And remember that He is always there to greet you with strong hands gentleness, and the tenderness of a father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Uh, We don't deserve your kindness and your gentleness, but but you simply are. Uh, Lord, we remember uh, even now that, uh, that you just are a gentle and a loving and a kind father. Why? Because you are good. You are good. And again, we're reminded of a lesson we learn in childhood. God is great. God is good. Thank you, dear Father, for enabling us to experience your goodness. Even when you discipline us, and we we admit, every single one of us would admit, we need your discipline. We need your firm hand. We need uh, your rod. We, we, like Ephraim, can be silly as doves at times. We thank you for the times that you allow our silly plans to fail. They remind us, those moments, that we need to turn to you. We need to turn to you in repentance. We need to turn to you in confession. And we need to receive from you mercy and love through Christ our Lord. We praise you in his name. Amen.